they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all evil in some form or another. I'm not guilty. The dead won't buy me. It's the living you gotta worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Well, hello there. Hi. Welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Cast. Welcome. We are your hosts, Janelle. And I'm Vicky. Was that good? Yeah, that was <laughs> I feel good. like I needed to bring in like the news radio show. I'm glad that I picked it. up my coffee specifically. <laughs> for It like made me get more into the moment. Right. I was going for smoky and sultry. Like an work? NPR kind yes. of vibe? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so thank you guys for coming back and listening to us. Yeah, welcome back. Um, you do your little saying. Come on. Oh, yeah. Now. So, yeah. <laughs> if you guys have listened to us before, welcome back. And if this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We need a t shirt with that on it. I know. Just I've actually been thinking about some designs. Maybe that'll come up next do it. in the merch store. Jeez. Okay. I'm excited. Fuck, Janelle. God. I'm excited for your art, Vicky. Are God. you? I am. It feels like it's been a really long We were just talking about this like a really long time since we recorded although it's the same amount of time that it always is between recording sessions (laughs) but since we've seen each other because we've just been you've been doing art and i've been playing video games (laughs) i mean that's pretty average yeah basically yeah no trying to get outside and enjoy this um bit of super nice midwest weather that we're having yes before it turns into 100 degrees of death or back into snow I'm just saying that could happen. (laughs) Could happen. I wouldn't be surprised. I just bought a bunch of plants for my garden. (laughs) Did you plant them yet? No, 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 no. not yet. Because there's like a little frost happening this week. So I was like, just keep my tomatoes in my house for another week and we should be good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's getting to be that time. I'm imagining that more bodies are going to be showing up in garbage bags on the side of the road as the snow snow melts away. Wow. I'm just saying, I have been seeing an increasing number of garbage bags. Zero to ten. <laughs> what do you want from me? It's a true crime podcast. It is. We talk about murder. It's the truest crime podcast. Oh my gosh. I think we have a good episode. Just real. Yeah. Yeah. I am excited about I'm this I'm excited episode. for this one. Yeah. So we do, as always, I mean, we always have a good episode. <laughs> That's true. For you guys. In case you didn't know. But first, let's head over to the newsroom. All right, so we are talking today about what was first dubbed the Phantom Pooper. But I did see this morning that they have come up with a better name for him, and they're calling him the Pooper Intendant. I don't know if that's a better name, but... So, in Holmdel, New Jersey, at Holmdel High School, the workers there were, like, on a daily basis finding human feces um, on or near the sports fields on the schools, and they finally decided to install some cameras and discovered that a man named Thomas Tramaglini... Sure. Tramaglini. Say it with confidence. Thomas Tramaglini. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Um, would just poop on the track field. Was he a student? Well, he is actually the superintendent. Oh, boy. Of a nearby school named Kenilworth um, 
it's in the Kenilworth public school system. But he would go to use the track in the morning to like run before school and then just like poop on the grounds. And so they started I mean, calling him the pooper attendant, which is great. Have you ever had protein shakes? They do make you gurgle. I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, it kind of reminds me of have you ever seen the series Vice Principals? No. Okay. Is that First the one all, with uh, Danny, Danny? Yeah. I've seen watch trailers it, for it. Watch it because that's what it reminds me of. He literally was like, we need to shit on the school, literally. <laughs> so that's what it reminds me of. I just... It's beautiful. I just... It's one of these things uh, that I'm like, I can't believe people do this. I hope he got fired. Well, he did get arrested, and okay. they charged him with defecating in public, lewdness, and littering. Defecating in public is a legit charge? Uh, apparently it or is. Or did they just make it in up In New for Jersey. This? <laughs> um, uh, what does it tell you about New Jersey? Oy. <laughs> Yeah, and he's on a paid leave of absence right now. They like to... The articles that I've seen really like to point out the salary that he was making for some reason, I guess, because it's quite a lot of money. Because you can Um, afford to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Yeah, so he was making uh, $147,000 a year. Almost $148,000 a year. And is taking a paid leave of absence. Yeah, so that means for the, you should have some sort of decorum because you're getting paid that much. <laughs> yeah. So they caught the pooper intendant, the phantom pooper, found out who it was. Okay, once maybe it's I can so understand, good. you know. It's so good. But repeatedly, like, yeah, come on. Well, the fact that it was like literally on a daily basis, like every day you're like, God damn it, another pile. You can imagine the guy who's finding, (laughs) seriously, sometimes it, I guess I have to say the shit really hit the fan for him. Oh, no, 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 because it was more Judy jokes. (laughs) Yeah, but he was pooping on a field. You gotta, there was no fans, Janelle. There's fans in the stadium. (laughs) Not at five in the morning. I hope not. You never know. Anyway. Yeah, a lot of people do go use those tracks, too, in the morning yeah. before school or after school. So it's like, yeah. Especially how did no a... one see him, though? You know what I mean? Yeah. And they, I mean, our school used to do practice in the morning. I mean, well, I feel like especially, like, the, the heavily populated areas. Like, when I was going to school in the suburbs near Chicago, um, just, like... The, the track that we had on campus, a lot of people would come by because it was like the nearby community. There's a lot of yeah. people, you know, not so much. I feel like you probably see it in like our hometown, kind mm-hmm. of, but not on like that scale. Like there definitely was a lot of people that would like yeah, come just, walking mm-hmm. or running or whatever in the morning. I feel like someone would have seen him. I feel like there's probably like a porta potty or an outdoor bathroom out in one of those also, places. Also, you're a superintendent. You have keys to everything. You can just let yourself in. Yeah, but I don't think that was the school. He didn't work at that that school. That particular that particular school. school. So why anyway, he, why isn't he running at his own school? Maybe they didn't have a track. Life is a mystery. I don't know. I don't know the the answers to these questions. We don't know anything. This podcast is full of no facts. No, just superintendents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, let's head over to Netflix and kill. Start off with a spoiler warning. And this week it's actually kind of. An HBO and kill? Yeah. I'm a little bit. Janelle's taking this one this week. Yeah, this is my turn for once. No. Get it. Get it, <laughs> Instead girl. Instead of me just going, yeah, I saw it. <laughs> Basically. Um, so I was watching, I like got really amped up because I saw this kind of like preview on HBO. And it was a HBO doc about um, the backlog of rape kits. Mm-hmm. And it's called, um, shoot, where did I put it? 
Maybe you were doing so good. I know. I fucked up. It's because I put all the information ahead of it. <laughs> okay, here we go. It's called I Am Evidence. <laughs> it's called I Am Evidence. Okay. I Am Evidence. Are you? Well, I'm not. Evidence of what? Rape. Okay. Um, <laughs> Whoa. Yes, zero to ten. Um, so it's called I Am Evidence, and the Joyful Heart Foundation, who is the one who's responsible for the end the backlog, um, kind of like organized fight, yeah. I guess you could say. It's not yeah. a foundation. Um, the end the backlog is not a foundation. It's a movement. A movement that yeah. the Joyful Heart Foundation has um, started. It's a little confusing because when you look up information, it's all titled like end the backlog, and at the very bottom it's like, by the Joyful Heart Foundation. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it should be like, Joyful Heart Foundations and the backlog. Yeah. They need new marketing. Anyway, um, so it's a joint effort between the Joyful Heart Foundation and Mariska Haggerty. And if you don't know who that is, you should go watch Law & Order SVU because she's like the main character. <laughs> Big fan she's over She's also Jane Mansfield's daughter. Okay. Um, another thing you might know her for. <laughs> But they did this great um, documentary where they talked to a bunch of different women from, it was like California, Cleveland, um, I want to say it was West Virginia or Virginia, somewhere on the East Coast. Yeah. And they kind of talked about their experiences um, after they were raped and how the police treated them and how they kept checking up on their case. And these, you know, cops and detectives were like, yeah, it's just going to go to locker. It's oh. just going to be stored. Literally, they Shit. told these women that nothing was going to happen. Now, if you know anything about or have saw any of this stuff about and the backlog in Cleveland, Ohio, they had like tens of thousands of rape kits that were stored, um, as well as Detroit had a, a several, you know, thousands of them. Detroit's was stored in a facility that had no air conditioning in a condemned building that was about to be torn down. Jeez. And this Joyful Heart Foundation and a couple of other Detroit natives went and they fought and they said, get all of this stuff removed now. We need to go through it. It needs to be saved. It needs to be put into a like sealed room that has temperature control. And um, they removed all of them just in time before the building was, you know, torn down. Yeah. So it goes through all of these different, like, you know, cities having terrible, terrible conditions for these rape kits. It comes across a story of a woman who fought in, I believe it was California. That was the story in California. Mm -hmm. She called every single day for 10 years to get her case heard. I know that's horrible, but that also doesn't really surprise me yeah. either. And finally, they realized, you know, okay, we're going to test it. And they tested it, and it was connected to several rapes Go across figure. the United States and what do you know? Who yeah. would have thought? Yeah. So she's been fighting really hard to get all of these backlog rape kits tested because what they're finding is they're finding these huge patterns of serial rapists, serial murderers um, across the United States, not just within these small areas, but it's solving cases from decades ago and bringing up evidence to connect murders and rapes across the United States. And it's like, why wouldn't you put forth the effort to do this. Right. You know, why wouldn't you at least if someone, I mean, if I was a detective and this person kept calling and calling and calling, at least test that one. That yeah. person is willing to testify. And then in a lot of these cases, that's not the case. 
So it just, ugh, it was a mind fuck, but it's also like, this is what happens. Right. So the and name of the, what's the name of the documentary called again? I Am Evidence okay. on HBO. Okay. Um, you can watch some of it on the Joyful Heart Foundation's website, which we can put up. I'll put a link to. Yep. Um, they're doing really great work. You can also help end the backlog by donating to them and um, just kind of using the hashtag end the backlog just to get people more aware yeah. of the movement. But yeah. All right. It's a really great documentary, definitely. I will have to check it out. <laughs> I tend to, like, kind of, I'll go into HBO every once in a while, just mm-hmm. see what they've got, browse. They've generally got some pretty good documentaries on. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a lot of murder and music. <laughs> yeah. Like, and yeah. sometimes both at the same time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, before we get started, this is that part of the show where we say content is not appropriate for all listeners. And yes. holy moly, do we mean it this week. Um, this week's going to be a doozy. It is going to be a doozy. A We're doozy. going to be discussing sex work, violence, murder, um, and a lot of things that fall under that umbrella. So yes. if you're not comfortable with that, maybe try one of our other episodes. But right. Or just keep hitting fast forward 15 until you find a part you like. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So heads up on that. But you want to start it off, Janelle? Yeah, okay. So we're going to kind of keep talking in the same vein of that HBO doc that we discussed. Sometimes Um, we do things in themes here, and it all kind of works out. So there's a legit theme for this episode, just through and through the whole thing. Yay! Um, So I was watching that, and I was kind of listening to some other um, podcasts over the past week, and there was a lot of talk about the FOSTA-SESTA bill, which kind of got me thinking about crimes against sex workers and just, like, the general you know, Mm -hmm. crimes against women, really. Um, So if you are living under a rock and you don't know what the fuck FOSTA-SESTA is, I'm going to break it down for you a little bit. Um, So FOSTA is uh, Fight Online Sex Trafficking, and SESTA is Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act. So these are two bills, one for the House, one for the Senate, Mm -hmm. that are trying to stop, you know, sex trafficking, which sounds like amazing, right? But there's always a catch. (laughs) So they're trying to end sex trafficking business by taking away websites they see as aiding in these crimes. So you got your back pages, you got your personal ads on Craigslist, and there's a host of multiple other escort sites that are tiny that don't even, you know, fly into the radar. Right, right. Um, They want to make it illegal to advertise sex trafficking, um, and they know that these organizations are benefiting financially from the participation in this. So that's why they're targeting these websites. Um, So basically what's happening um, is people who put these ads, like if you say that you're going to put an ad up there, they're charging you for ads. So as you you are a sex worker, you put your ad up there, you're getting charged for that. Mm -hmm. And then you're obviously selling your services. um, But they're like forcing these people to pay for this. So that's where the issue comes in. Right. So when you're having someone who is being forced to put up there, you know, as a sex trafficked person, um, it's a lot of money being exchanged between these companies and these sex traffickers. So Mm -hmm. that's why they wanted to stop Backpage and Craigslist from putting up these escort ads. Now, I mean, it sounds like a great plan, but it really, truly, it endangers the lives of sex workers. It makes them harder to prosecute sex traffickers, and certain provisions of this bill would actually violate the Constitution's ex post facto law. So there's a lot of controversy. Um, 
I re- like was listening to an interview with another podcast and a sex worker who put their ads on Backpage, and it really does, for the people who are using it for the purpose that it was intended for, it really does hurt their business because it actually is kind of creating a safe space for these sex workers um, because they're able to screen their clients. Sure. So in an official statement by Senator Ron Wyden, he stated, I continue to be deeply troubled that this bill's approach will make it harder to catch dangerous criminals, that it will favor big tech companies and at the expense of startups, and that it will stifle innovation. So he's saying that it's going to not only affect these people who are using these websites, but also affect people who want to start websites where, you know, potential sex traffickers might use them. And that's not at all what the website intended, but if they're afraid to create this website or have these like open spaces for people to connect with each other, yeah, that they're going to be targeted by this bill when the intention of that website was never right. that in the first place. Think of it like this. Uh, the main purpose is they want some way to hold accountable um, these larger website hosters mm-hmm. for third-party content. So Correct. for example... If we were to, I don't know, post a podcast that someone found offensive and we got ourselves into trouble, um, they would be able to go to like iTunes to Apple Mm -hmm. and hold them responsible for our content. Correct. Um, Therefore, you know, making it more difficult for us to post content because now you're going through. I mean, this is just like on a broader scheme mm-hmm. outside of just the the sex trafficking scope this is like going to probably affect largely anybody who's who's creating any content and trying to post That's it right. online it also kind of go hands in hand with the net neutrality issue and it's right. just like at what point yeah are you responsible for your own self and you know this company is not necessarily facilitating yeah. um, but i mean if you look at the back page issue though they are facilitating because they're, you know, asking for payment mm-hmm. and not screening or, you know, because they do have, you can flag stuff, um, but people don't. Right. So that was the issue is that they're getting, and they were taking lots of money for these ads. Yeah. And not doing any sort of screening. Um, so that's where they got in trouble for the issue. Right. But that's one company out of a million and you can't blame one for the many kind of an issue. Yeah, I find my this is one of these issues that I find <laughs> myself in a weird spot on because obviously I don't promote sex trafficking. That's not something right. that I want to happen. I also think that these websites need to be somewhat held accountable for things like that happening on the website. Right. But there has to be a better way to um somehow like monitor or report that yes to the authorities that need to to be notified about that without affecting literally this whole big chunk of the internet that um like i said people who who post third-party content are going to be affected and like that's not super cool so like it's a tricky, it's one of those things that's like, it's hard for me to have an opinion on how to solve it. Like, I don't know how to fix it's... that problem. I just am not like, <laughs> obviously a huge fan of people getting sex trafficked on Correct. And there's know? actually statistics showing that most of the people who put their, you know, stuff on that website, it's like one in 
150 are potential sex traffic victims. Yeah. So if you think about those numbers, and it's not even proven sex traffic victims, potential. Yeah. They don't really know. Because it's also hard to decipher if it's just a picture of a person. I mean, lots of people look the same. Right. But one of the women that was in this interview that I listened to, she said, you know, this also attacks websites that we use that are safe haven blacklist sites. So there is a network of sex workers who advertise online and they created a blacklist of customers who are known for violence, threats, theft, and it's going to attack those websites too. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I would never do this kind of work, but if a person wants to do it, if that's the way they feel they make the best money, then they should be allowed to do that. They should be allowed to sell themselves if they want. Of course, it's right. dangerous and there should be some sort of regulation if it was a, if it was legal, but the government has no right to tell you what you can and cannot do with your body. Yeah. Um, so the issue is if these people, they want to approach this work in a very business-like manner and they're trying to look out for each other because there is no outreach, there is no assistance when you are raped as a sex worker, when you are beaten, when you are held at gunpoint and robbed because of the work that you do. Right. These people still have rights. Yeah. You know, it's not okay to be like, well, you're a prostitute. You deserved it. You Ugh. got it. What was coming to you sort of a thing. Gross. That's not okay. Yeah, that's and not okay. these websites where they're creating these blacklists are extremely helpful for these women to keep each other safe. Mm -hmm. It also helps in a sense that they know who the real women are who are doing this work. So if they come across a person on these websites that's not part of this blacklist group, it's like, well, maybe she's not, you know, really a sex worker. Maybe she's a trafficked person. So it kind of also gets you to know, like, who's actually in the business, who's actually doing this. Right. And who might not be. Right. So, I mean, the SESTA bill has been criticized even more because of, uh, free speech and internet group issues. And there's mm -hmm. like a list of like 10 different, um, like the ACLU, the center for democracy and technology, the sex worker outreach project, like all of these people are coming together to oppose this bill because of just, it's this guy, it's, it's censorship, right? Right. It's internet censorship. It's just weakened safe Harbor laws. It's just a huge fucking issue. And I really think that if they want to stop sex trafficking, they need to approach it differently. Um, it's like good intentions, but sort of not really being able to follow through with it. Mm -hmm. Taking down Backpage, I think, was extremely necessary. Yeah. Because they were profiting hand over fist millions of dollars from sex workers. Right. And that's not right. Yeah. Um, I actually had an opportunity to speak with a person who formerly was um, a sex worker and uh, this person wants to remain anonymous about their time using Backpage. Sure. And due to this person's circumstances, I conducted this interview via email. And I'm just going to read you some of the information that this person spoke to me about. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of enlightening um, speaking with them and just kind of explaining, you know, the different ins and outs of using Backpage and why, you know, some people might not want to do it anymore. Yeah. So, um... I'm not going to use a name or an alias. I'm just going to say they uh, to protect this person's identity. So I asked them, how did they come across Backpage? And they told me, um, I knew that it was a forum that providers 
you know, could use. I prefer the term provider or whore and never prostitute. So they okay. they are like, I'm not a prostitute. Sure. <laughs> I would post an ad about once a week. Only thing that sucked about it was you had to pay for your ad. It got even worse when the only way you could pay was through Bitcoin. So that's another reason that Backpage got in trouble because Bitcoin's a cryptocurrency. It's untraceable. Mm-hmm. You can do anything with it. Right. And that's where the sort of weird illegal happenings kind of started happening. Mm-hmm. Um, that also is an issue in terms of sex trafficking because then there's no paper trail if that person was sex trafficked. Right. Where'd they come from? Where's the money going? Kind of thing. Um, I asked them, can you tell me um, how you kind of came into this industry? And they said, I had no other way to pay the bills and I was extremely desperate. Um, so this is kind of the story that you see a lot um a person's at their last wits end and they can't think of what else they can do to help themselves and so they kind of you know like let's try this and see if i can get anything from it sure and then i asked them did you find using this site made your work any safer and they said yes and no the yes is it seemed like the people that were responding were a lot more serious about contracting you for the services than just to waste your time or to get pictures, mm-hmm. like it seemed when I used the free sites. So um, this kind of, like I said again, this blacklist sort of mentality kind of weeded out the people that were just trying to get free stuff or just they wanted to see, you know, pictures of a person or right. talk you down on price or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then they said, you know, the no aspect would be the one and only time I ever got busted by an undercover cop was from my back page ad. Yeah. So... I mean, there were police policing it, but Backpage itself was not policing. (laughs) Right. And then I asked them, did you come across customers who abused this system? Kind of were shady and did things that were, you know, a little weird. She said, "Um, no matter what forum you use, you will always come across a fucktard (laughs) who wants something for free or try to talk you down on price and make you feel even cheaper than you already do. So... Again, you know, that happens anywhere. But the way this was set up, it was a little bit more of expected, like, this is the services that I provide. This is the pricing. Mm -hmm. There's no negotiation. And it was kind of like a pay before the services provided. Um, And then the last question that they felt comfortable answering for me was, um, did you come in contact with people who had ulterior motives in using Backpage to kind of, you know draw attention to themselves or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of was thinking in terms of like sex trafficking. So did you come across people who were trying to get you to participate in their like group of, you know, sex workers, kind of like a pimp situation? She says, um, sometimes I would get a message asking me to provide drugs for an appointment. And to me, these kind of specific weird questions just screamed cop for me. So I, kind of filtered out these um, yeah. these responses to the ads. Um, I did ask a couple more questions, but because of this person's circumstances, they didn't feel comfortable kind of answering all of them. So sure. um, I would say if you or anyone you know has done sex work before and you want to tell your story, you know, send it in to us. Um, I'm doing a couple uh, Patreon-exclusive um kind of content for just talking more about the sesta Fosta bill and mm-hmm. you know yeah. crimes against sex workers so if you want to tell your story go ahead and send it to the bad taste crimecast at gmail and um 
I'll talk to you. <laughs> yeah, and we do definitely want to extend a sincere thank you to this anonymous user who mm-hmm. decided to share a little bit with us. We don't always have perspectives like that, so it is mm-hmm. kind of nice to get somebody who was in the thick of it and can can give us some firsthand accounts. So yeah. and was just um, like, thank you very much for yeah, sharing with us. So much. Yeah. They were just like, yeah, I can provide you with anything you want to know. I was like, oh, wow. Thank you so much. Solid. <laughs> yeah, because we don't know shit. <laughs> yeah. I read stories. That's all I know. Right. Yeah. So obviously that is our theme today. And yes. this is a topic that we've discussed on episodes before. It's something Multiple that we <laughs> feel very strongly about. Um, so we are going to be talking about some serial killers. Yes. Um, I am talking about Joel Rifkin today, mm-hmm. uh, AKA Joel, the Ripper. You know how I love my nicknames. I know. It sounds like it sounds like a really bad like nineteen eighties like smooth jazz band or something. Yeah, <laughs> Joel the Ripper. Yeah. Hey, you know that guy? That's Joel the Ripper. <laughs> um. Anyway, so Joel was born in January nineteen fifty nine in New York to uh, two unwed college students who weren't like really ready for a family. So he was adopted by Bernard and Jean Rifkin on Valentine's Day. That sounds sweet. Sounds sweet. (laughs) Didn't quite work out like that. Yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) Uh, The couple, they later adopted a daughter and the whole family moved to East Meadow, Long Island in 1965, where Joel started first grade. Um, As with many people who grow up to be serial killers or not so stable, uh, Joel was bullied pretty heavily in school. Other students gave him the name The Turtle. Uh, due to his slouching posture and how he like walked around school, he, he apparently had a really slow walk. <laughs> how he ate lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was a thing. Uh, they would also assault him in school by like pulling down his pants and stealing his lunch and books and like anything that you can think of as like your standard bully trick in the sixties. That was just. Awful kids, kids being awful kids. That, that happened. I know. <laughs> it's so true. Kids are really mean. Um, I had one bully me today. No, I'm just oh, kidding. No. <laughs> uh, so not so great. He was basically unable to comp- compete in like athletics or neighborhood games because the kids just totally excluded him from whatever they were doing. They His... wouldn't let him play kick the can. <laughs> nope. He was not allowed. Uh, he also like didn't have a great academic life either. Um, he had undiagnosed dyslexia. And so this kind of caused some horrible grades. I'm it's, not. It's so weird when we discuss like these serial killers, it's like either they were fucking geniuses or they were mentally handicapped like well there's no in between he did have an iq of 128 i just don't get it right yeah um the lack of academic success was like a super disappointment to his parents as Mm -hmm. well his father was a member of the east meadow um school board which kind of added this extra pressure to him and his parents in general were just like oblivious to all of this extra bullying that was happening to him as well. Um, and the bullying, usually the case, right? Yeah. The mom, his mom kind of just thought that he, you know, it was, it was just like kid stuff and tried to cheer him up and, you know, so hard because like 
tons of kids get bullied and they get swirlies and wedgies and they turn out just fucking fine. And then you have like that, you know, 10% of kids who are just like, I'm going to remember this fucking wedgie for the rest of my life. And yeah. I'm just going to meditate on it until I kill someone. And you never know which one it's going to be. God. I'm just saying. <laughs> so the bullying continued into high school. Um, his grades also didn't improve. Um, he did make like uh, more of an attempt to get into some of the extracurricular activities by joining the track team, but he was given the nickname Lardass, oh, coupled boy. with teammates like hiding his clothes and giving him swirlies, like you said. Hey, man. That's the trifecta, Indian burn, swirly, switchy. Like I said, it's like the standard bully tricks. Um, Despite all of this, Joel really just like wanted to please his teammates and that he would like and still invite them over for like watching TV and drinking beer and like hanging out and trying to just make some friends, which is kind of depressing a bit. Um, some of the, I saw some interviews with like former teammates of his that they flat out were like, yeah, we were using him. Like looking back at it, we were definitely using him. Oh man. Right. <laughs> uh, it's 2020. I mm-hmm. <laughs> Once the track team wasn't really like panning out, Joel instead decided to join the yearbook staff where the bullying continued. Um, but like how <laughs> starting with his camera being stolen almost immediately after he joined the yearbook oh club God. and like the yearbook club is mostly nerds from my recollection of right. our yearbook club. <laughs> right and it ended with him being completely excluded from the end of the year rap party which he had like been working so hard despite all of the other stuff to like meet the deadlines and get the yearbook out on time and they just completely didn't even invite him um he was devastated he was really really upset about that but at the end of the year he got a gift uh, of a car from his parents oh okay (laughs) well he used that car to troll for sex workers in hempstead oh okay (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah he started he started looking for sex workers in hempstead and then later in manhattan and at this point in his life he started to develop like bondage fantasies after watching Alfred Hitchcock's frenzy. Um, For those of you who don't know, the movie's about a vicious sex killer known as the necktie killer. That's terrorizing London. Yep. Um, Love me some Alfred Hitchcock. I love Alfred Hitchcock also. Uh, But he found this sexually stimulating um, I really feel if Alfred Hitchcock wasn't able to make movies that he would be a serial killer. Probably. I think he acted out all of his fantasies through all of them. Thank God, because they're great movies. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, they mm-hmm. go dark and twisty and murdery quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he had fantasies... Um, like his fantasies had this theme of rape and sadism and murder, including things that he saw on TV or that he read. And some of them were things that he came up with himself. Um, so on a lighter note, he did graduate high school in 1977, but he was at the bottom of his class. Um, he did go on to attend Nassau Community College in Long Island, but he habitually cut class and he was only able to complete one course. Mm-hmm. Uh, He transferred to the State University of New York in Brockport, but continued his lack of academic success, and he eventually dropped out in 1980. Um, His relationship with his father never really improved. The two were, like, fighting all the time, um, mostly about his school Mm. work being not ideal. 
But if you pass, that's all that matters, man. Right? D's get degrees. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Joel, in this time, Joel only had one girlfriend while he was at Brockport, but nothing really like came out of this relationship, and he kind of just had this reclusive lifestyle. I mean, that's still more than most people, so... Yeah. it A lot of the time, it was like he would get a date, and then he would get, like, when he was out with this girl, they would get bullied. There'd be, like, people who would follow him on this date and, like, oh chase him God. around. Yeah, I what mean, it was some crazy like? shit. Um... Because I want to know what makes this person so fucking bullyable. Yeah, Google Joel Rifkin. He's got a mustache and glasses, and he looks like you would expect. Kind of nerdy. It's an average Joe. I just want to know. An average Joel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm allowed to have some of those sometimes, too. Huh. I mean, he doesn't look any different than any person at that time period. No. Mm Mm-mm. And there's, like, a picture of him as a teenager, and he just has... He looks like fucking Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. That, like, they all looked the same in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I don't know. Um, throughout this relatively short college career, Joel continued to search for sex workers, um, and this habit did become an addiction. Uh, Joel's father, Bernard, was also chronically ill, and he was diagnosed with prostate cancer on top of emphysema that he already had. Um, He was diagnosed in 1986, and by 1987, the pain and the illness had just become too much for him, and he chose to take his life by taking a massive amount of barbiturates, um, and he died after four days in a coma. Oh, Joel did deliver what was described as a touching eulogy at his funeral, Um, I do like really quick, just want to pause here for a moment (laughs) because already, like you can see all of these common traits that Joel shares with a lot of other serial killers that we've discussed on the show before. Um, John Wayne Gacy was one that like popped into my head right away. He talked about how he had this great relationship with his father, but in reality it was not, but like he always remembered it as something that was really positive and he always loved him and he never felt like it was some straight up conditioning right there Mm -hmm. (laughs) um he also goes through his life feeling inadequate major disappointment but like i said would describe it as positive he wasn't able to establish any connections with the people around him and he had very violent sexual fantasies and addiction to sex workers um, let's not also forget that he had an IQ of 128. And just for perspective, a score between 120 and 140 is considered very superior intelligence. And you would think that he'd be able to, like, I don't know, be a little bit better in his academics. But that doesn't always translate to book no. smarts. You know what I mean? No. Yeah. Um, so anyway... Back to Joel. He attempted to go to college again in 1988 when he enrolled in a two-year horticulture program at the State College of Technology in Farmingdale, New York. Um, he fucked that up. Did pretty well. Okay, I'm like, it's <laughs> fucking plants. <laughs> he did pretty well this time. He got better grades, but he did leave the college without receiving a degree in 1989. Um, this was the same year that like all of these violent sexual fantasies and ambitions would kind of come to a head. So like he had this increasing addiction to finding sex workers Mm -hmm. and trying to go to college. He was having a hard time balancing the two, you know, nightlife and daylight. I'm just saying, yeah, I'm just (laughs) saying. 
Um, in March of 1989, Joel drove to Manhattan's East Village to pick up a sex worker and brought her back to his home. The woman was a massive drug addict, even having Joel stop numerous times on the way home for drugs. Jeez. While at the house, the woman whose name... Um, I couldn't really find she was referred to as Susie mm-hmm. and that could have just as well been a fake name. Right. Um, that's yeah. how he remembered her as. Um, but Susie continuously shot heroin. She would like fall asleep and wake up and shoot more heroin and then fall asleep and Damn. wake up. Um, persistence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While dedication to her craft. <laughs> Joel was like not really into the whole drug scene. Um, but really look like it. No, no. And so this really, really made him angry. So out of nowhere, Joel grabs a souvenir howitzer shell, uh, which a howitzer shell is like, it's, it's maybe like a little thicker than the end of a baseball bat. Like it's kind of like that and probably the length of your forearm. I mean, it's like huge. Um, so he grabs this howitzer shell and beats the woman repeatedly with it. She, Susie remained alive for a little while after this until Joel finally strangled her to death. Right. Um, that heroin's going to keep your heart pumping strong. Right. Uh, when he had decided that she was dead, Joel went to bed. And okay. <laughs> the next morning, he took on the task of disposing her body by... Um, I apologize. This is going to get a little graphic. Um, He dragged her body downstairs and first removed her teeth and severed her fingertips to avoid identification. He then dismembered her body with an X-Acto knife, cutting it into... Sorry. Sorry. X-Acto knife. Exacto knives freak me the fuck out. Yeah. Um, he, I've seen someone cut their leg open by accident with an exacto knife, and I almost threw up everywhere. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. They are sharp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, he cut it into six parts and then distributed them evenly through, or distributed distributed them throughout New Jersey, Long Island, and New York. Um like I said, this woman was only known as Susie. She was eventually discovered on a New Jersey golf course when a patron found her head stuffed into a paint can. That's like what he had around the house. But like how? Yeah. Paint cans are not that big. I don't think my head would fit. In well, that's why I used the descriptor stuffed. <laughs> Wait, with like the lid on too? Um, it didn't specify. Because that, do you know how yeah. hard it is just to put the lid on one of those with only paint in there? My guess would be probably not. Because it's like, that yeah. shit is yeah. tough. Um, <laughs> she wasn't identified until 2013. Oh um, investigators were able to use DNA to identify her as Heidi Balk. So they were eventually able to identify her. I do also want to point out at this point, Joel lived with his mother and sister. They were out of town on vacation Mm -hmm. during this first murder. And so he immediately had to kind of like dispose of this body, take it downstairs. And why didn't he just have a house party? (laughs) I don't know. It's a good question. Late night heroin murder. Right. Um, Joel wouldn't kill again until 1990, which was just over a year later. Um, Again, it was a situation where his mother and sister went out of town on vacation. Um, He went out into the city to track down a sex worker and bring her back to his home. 
This time he met a woman named Julie Blackbird. The two spent the night together and around 9 a.m. the following morning, Joel completely loses it and beats Julie with a heavy table leg before strangling her to death. Was it just a leg he had laying around or did he break a table? I'm not sure. I was wondering this because he does use the same table leg again later. So I don't know if they just had some broken furniture around or if maybe he just saved it because he thought, yeah, (laughs) suspect. Um, Again, Joel disposed of Julie's body by dismemberment. This time, however, he decided to take a different approach and put all of the parts into buckets filled with cement and then chucked the buckets into the East River and the Brooklyn Canal. Uh, Julie Blackbird's remains have never been found. Damn. Mm-hmm. In 1991, this is going to be, you'll see a pattern here. In uh, 1991, Joel started his own landscaping business. Uh, he rented oh, no. <laughs> a space at a nursery to store his landscaping equipment. And the whole, honestly, like the whole arrangement didn't really last too long because... I mean, when you're busy killing sex workers, who really has the time to, like, own your own small business? Exactly. Am I right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But while it did last, he used that storage space as a dropping point for corpses, like, in between destinations. Mm. So if he needed to move it from his house to there and then move it to another location to be disposed of. Um. He next killed a woman on July 14th, 1991, named Barbara Jacobs, who was 31. She was also a sex worker who struggled with a drug addiction. Again, Joel picked her up, took her back to his home for sex. Once Barbara fell asleep, he used the same heavy table leg again to beat her before strangling her to death. The idea of having to like dismember another body seemed kind of tedious this time. So he put Barbara's body into a plastic bag inside of a cardboard box and dumped her corpse into the Hudson River. When Barbara was discovered, the coroner blamed her death on a drug overdose. Now, this Wait, one sounded surprising to me. crawled into a box and threw herself off a bridge. Regardless <laughs> of whether there were drugs in her system, the fact that she was found in a plastic bag inside of a cardboard box sounds to me a little more than just somebody overdosing and, like, falling into a river. Right. I mean, okay, sure, she might have overdosed, but someone still disposed of her body. Mm-hmm. The thing you have so to keep in mind is this is still the early 90s. There was definitely this, especially in the big cities like New York, um, there was still this mentality that the people who were in the not so great areas that were often sex workers or drug addicts were not as important. Right. And so it was easier to attribute it to that than try to launch an investigation and get evidence that probably wasn't there right. you know from here on out you're gonna see like this acceleration in joel's murders the next happened a few months later on september 1st 1991 he picked up a 22 year old woman named mary ellen deluca who was also a sex worker struggling with addiction the two of them drove around and spent approximately 150 dollars on crack cocaine before wow. going to That's a cheap a motel. She kept just like making him drive to another dealer and another dealer and another dealer. See, the thing about crack is it's cheap, so mm-hmm. 150 dollars is a lot of crack. 
According to Joel, Mary Ellen complained about having sex with him and like rushed through the act of having sex with him. And this made him really angry. And so she was also strangled to death and her body was left at a rest stop in Orange County. Mary DeLuca, Mary Ellen DeLuca remained unidentified until 1993. The next happened less than a month later on September 23rd when Joel picked up 31-year-old Yoon Lee and she was strangled and her body disposed of in the East River. The next woman who is on this is like I said it's going to be very repetitive for yeah. a little bit. Um the next woman who was only known as Jane Doe number 1 or simply number 6 because it was his sixth victim. Okay. Um but the first Jane Doe it's Nothing. yes yeah right um she is only known about because of these confessions by joel rifkin according to joel she was picked up in manhattan a few days before christmas in 1991 and she was strangled during oral sex in his car he took her body and placed it in a 55 gallon oil drum and rolled the drum into the east river her body has never been found it's only according to him Unless he put something else in that oil drum, I would think that it would float, no? I don't know. I mean, they're heavy, but then that's air in there. Yeah, could have been cement in there. I don't know. Where does also one get just, like, random oil drums? No idea. Couldn't tell ya. My dad works in the oil industry, and they are not fucking cheap. Oh, no, I bet not. So I don't think they're just laying around. (laughs) A 28-year-old woman named Lorraine Orvieto was the next one to uh, die at the hands of Joel Rifkin. The two of them met at on December 26, 1991, in Bayshore, Long Island. Again, Joel strangled Lorraine while she performed oral sex and placed her body in another 55-gallon oil drum um, and dumped her body into Coney Island Creek. Lorraine Orvieto's body... I'm sorry, Orvieto's body was found over six months later on July 11th, 1992 by a fisherman. And it was when her body was found, it was actually two months before anybody in her family filed a missing persons report. Um, So it took a little while for her to be identified after they found her body as well. One week later, on January 2nd, 1992, Joel met his met. 39-year-old Marianne Holman, who was actually his oldest victim. Again, Marianne was strangled while performing oral sex, also putting her body in a 55-gallon oil drum. So he had a couple of them lying around. Jesus. Um, And also put her body in Coney Island Creek. Her remains were also found just over six months later in July 1992, and Marianne was identified immediately by her dental records. Um, jump forward to Mother's Day weekend, May 10th, 1992. Joel meets 25-year-old Iris Sanchez, who he strangled during sex. Mother's Day, goddamn. Right. Um, this time, and possibly because he was fresh out of oil drums, uh, he drove Iris's body to the Brooklyn Bridge, chose an illegal dump location, which... Even though it's an illegal dump location, there's generally tons and tons and tons of garbage. Yeah. Uh, and he wedged her body underneath a rotting mattress. Her body was not found until Joel actually drew a map to where her body was at in 1993 Stop. when um, he confessed to these murders. Yeah, he had to actually draw a map to where the mattress was at. 
Uh, Joel also. How? The fucking how? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also mm-hmm. kind of why they, I don't want to say believe him, but they give a little um, credibility. credibility to the Jane Doe's that he says he killed because he was able to recall all of these things in great detail. Um, so they, they did kind of give some of that a little credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, Joel also confessed to killing a woman who, again, wasn't identified. It's actually Jane Doe number two. Um, her body was found on May 13th, 1992 inside of an oil drum in Newton Creek. The next happened on May 25th, 1992, when Joel met 33-year-old Anna Lopez, who was a mother of three. She was also a sex worker who was struggling with drug addiction. She was working on Atlantic Avenue in Queens when the two hooked up, and Joel strangled Anna in his car, drove her body to Brewster, where he dumped her body along I-84. She was found the next day by a motorist. And then in June 1992, Joel met 21-year-old Violet O'Neill, who he took back to his home and strangled after the two had sex. He then dismembered her body in the bathtub wrapped the body parts in plastic and disposed of them in like the waters around Manhattan. Again, his mother and sister were on vacation at this point in time. What does his mother and sister do to afford so many fucking vacations? I don't know. Maybe they're just taking vacations to get away from him. Oh, like we gotta get like, out of here. It's he a little release to murder someone. So let's go on vacation. Yeah. Um, also, how would you not notice? Like, okay. Yeah. He's cleaning up after himself, but, there's got to be something left behind. Like blood on that. Oh, there is. I was going to say, like, blood on that stupid leg of a table or something. Oh, there is. God. Yeah. I don't think um, he did a. Well, I mean, he did a decent job at hiding it because his mom and sister didn't find out until the police showed Years up knocking later. on their door. <laughs> uh, but I think he was keeping a lot of things off site or, like, in the garage as well. Right. Um, if I notice one thing out of place in my house, I'm oh, like, I know. Did you fucking do this, Bo? What is going on? <laughs> I am the same way. I am just like, I'm too observant. Because I'm also really afraid of like those stories where you find a person living in your attic. So, oh yeah. So I'm always like really watching like things in my house because <laughs> I live out in the middle of nowhere. So. Yeah, yeah. Me too. <laughs> I'm just overly paranoid. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Violet O'Neill's torso surfaced in the Hudson River while I other just dive right back and yep like there was a torso. Well, <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, I just it's not, I know it's not that a smooth nice transition. Of so about that torso floating <laughs> in the river, a torso in the river. <laughs> yes. So Violet O'Neill was dismembered in the bathtub. He wrapped her body parts in plastic, disposed of them in the waters around Manhattan. Her torso surfaced in the Hudson River while other parts of her body were found inside of a suitcase. Next, Joel met Mary Catherine Williams, who was 31, and he picked her up on October 2nd, 1992. She was strangled and her remains left in Yorktown. She was found on December 21st, 1992, and remained unidentified until Joel actually confessed Mm -hmm. in 93. And then Joel met 23-year-old Jenny Soto, who was picked up on November 16th, 1992. She was also strangled after sex in his car, and her body disposed of in the Harlem River. A lot of riverways and, and yeah. waterways around 
New York, and Manhattan, Long Island. Garbage, so, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. No one would notice a suitcase or a random fucking oil drum floating about. Right. Uh, her remains were found the next day, and she was identified by fingerprints, but her death was initially blamed on an ex-boyfriend who was like an ex-con <laughs> also. An no. It was initially been an overdose. She was chopped up inside of a plastic bag. No, it sounded like the, the gentleman she was involved with or previously involved with was a not-so-savory character. So they right. kind of assumed it was him, although there was never any like arrest me, arrest mate or anything like that. So don't worry. I am coming to the tail end of this like <laughs> really horrible just list of murders. Um, I know it's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's so fucking unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, Joel's first victim of 1993 was a 28-year-old woman named Leah Evans. The two met on February 27th, and he they stopped for sex in this abandoned parking lot where Joel strangled her. He then drove her remains to Long Island, where she was buried in the woods, and her body was found three months later. The next woman named uh, Lauren Marquez, who's 28 years old, she was picked up on April 2nd, 1993, when working on 2nd Avenue. Again, she was strangled, but this time she fought back enough that Joel actually snapped her neck and fractured some of her ribs in the process. For her. Yeah. Um, She, there weren't a lot that were described as having like fought back. And I think it's like most of them were high. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, she fought back enough that unfortunately it was a little worse for her. Um, he then dumped Lauren's body in the Suffolk County Pine Barrens, and Joel's Ooh. Pine Barrens. Have you ever, have no. you ever seen the Pine Barrens? Mm-mm. There's a lot of like um, talk about like the Jersey Devil being out in the Pine Barrens and everything, but mm-hmm. it is like essentially a hillbilly wasteland in New Jersey. Oh, geez. Nothing grows there. There's no light. It's just thick, dense, disgusting forest. Yeah. And there's, like, people that actually live there. Ooh, weird. Like, like mountain hills, people? It's like the hills have eyes kind of a situation. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, a except place. in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, except Ooh, I mean, no. worse than the hills have eyes if it's in New Jersey. <laughs> okay, you just closed your eyes at that comment. You're just like... No, thank you. No, thanks. <laughs> just as much radiation over there. Yeah, I mean, right. Really. <laughs> Uh, Joel's final victim was a 22-year-old woman named Tiffany Bresciani, or Bresciani, I'm not sure. Just say it with an accent and it'll sound legit. Bresciani. There you go. Was that the right accent? That sounded so fucking legit. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the two of them met on June 24th, 1993. They went to the parking lot of the New York Post where Joel strangled Tiffany I don't know. It was one of those facts that was just randomly wow. in there. That's like a little brazen, too, because, like, you know, reporters are nosy as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he left to drive home with her body in his car and stopped at various stores to pick up, like, rope and tarp to kind of, like... It was in the trunk, though, right? It wasn't just, like, in the passenger seat, like, chilled out. I'm actually not sure on this one. It eventually moves. He's driving a pickup and it eventually gets moved to the bed. But he might have had her in the cab of the truck 
until he was able to get the rope in the tarp so that he could he was 120 what an idiot 128 it's like she's dead you idiot um because by the time he got back to the house she was wrapped in a tarp and like rope and put in the uh, bed of the truck like another barrel no <laughs> this time in the bed of the truck but Never ending barrel supply when he got home he moved her body to the garage it sat there for three days um in intense heat this is june in new jersey uh or i'm sorry june in long island <laughs> you know um you know <laughs> you know uh he wasn't able to dispose of it for three days, so it just sat in the garage. At that point, I'd be like, what the fuck is that smell? Right. <laughs> this is going to be one of those cases where the neighbors, like, in hindsight, were like, oh, yeah, it did smell kind of funny, but, like, it didn't really, you know, he's a landscaper, so we assumed it was, like, chemicals that he used for landscaping. No. <laughs> <laughs> so Chemicals are... Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. What kind of chemicals smell like rotten flesh? I mean, I'm sure some of them, some of them smell like shit. I mean, they smell really bad. It either smells like cow manure. But to be fair. Or it smells like straight up like grass. I have not ever smelled like a rotting human body. I haven't smelled a rotting human body, but definitely an animal. Well, yeah. And you will know when it's death. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> On June 28th. Uh, 1993, state troopers spotted a man driving a 1984 Mazda pickup that had no license plate on the back. This is one of those ones that I'm like, you're so smart and you're driving around without a license plate on your car. With a dead body just hanging out in mm-hmm. the passenger seat. Yeah, this is, it's in the bed of the truck by this point. Right. But I mean, like, you know, it was in the passenger seat for a while. Yeah. He yeah. was like, it's fine. So the <laughs> troopers, yeah, right. <laughs> Hi guys. Uh, the Jesus troopers <laughs> pursued the car on the Southern State Parkway in what was called a slow speed chase. It was almost like he so like chase didn't like... even acknowledge that there were like police chasing after him. He just like kept on going his merry little way, <laughs> driving along until he tried to overcorrect for a turn that he had missed and drove right into a utility pole. Yeah. <laughs> so he, of course, was immediately arrested because As he did be. technically take the police on a chase. Oh uh, they were like calling out of the sirens for him to pull over and all that fun stuff. Um, like, sorry, I can't hear you. What's what? That you said? What? <laughs> Um, so they approach the car to handcuff him and they immediately smell the now rotting corpse that's been sitting in the heat for three days in the back of his truck. They smell it as they walk up to go arrest him. Mm-mm. Um, sure enough, when they look oh, under the tarp, don't look under the tarp. In the, well, they did. Don't. When they look <laughs> under the tarp in the bed of the truck, they spotted the body of Tiffany Breschiani. Oh, did they? Are they sure? Oh, oh, is that a body you say? Uh, when they asked Joel about it, he casually explained that he had paid the woman for sex and things went horribly wrong and he was headed to dispose of her body and then asked officers if maybe he needed a lawyer. <laughs> I know. It's like, well, you got one part of that, right? It's a good job. I think maybe I need a lawyer. So good job on that. <laughs> 
Um, of course, they arrested him. And they're like, mm, you made me need a couple of lawyers. Yeah. They took him to Hempstead and he was interrogated right away. He confessed, of course, not only to this murder in great detail, but he also told officers that Tiffany Bresciani was number 17. Oh, um, he, they also described him as showing this like emotional detachment that was worth note, something that you commonly see in sociopaths. Yep. Um, he could have just gotten away with that one, just being like, but he, he went full, full. Well, he could have gotten story. a bit cocky too after not having, you know, they always talk about sometimes serial killers want to be caught right. and it's like, well, nobody's paying attention to me, you know? So anyway, um, he confessed to all 17 murders and through missing persons reports and unidentified uh, persons, people, police were able to confirm 15 of the 17. So 15 plus the two Jane Doe's. In the meantime, officers obtained a search warrant to search the home that he shared with his mother and sister. They show up and knock on the door and they're like, what the hell is going on? Um, they immediately began collecting evidence, and when they left, they took at least 228 items from the home, including 75 pieces of women's jewelry, photographs of unidentified women, various items of feminine clothing, makeup cases, driver's licenses, prescription bottles prescribed to other women, wallets, and pocketbooks. I can just imagine him in the basement being like, don't come into my murder dungeon. I mean the basement. I mean the basement. <laughs> Did I say murder? I meant basement. Just like, all oh, my little trinkets are down here. What the fuck, dude? They also found some reading material that included a book on the Green River Killer and news clippings about Arthur Shawcross, a.k.a. the Genesee River Killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also searched the garage where they found a wheelbarrow with three ounces of human blood, a pair of women's panties, a stockpile of rope and a tarp, and a chainsaw with bloodstains and bits of human flesh still on some of the tools along with this horrible smell. How did his fucking mother or sister not see any of this. I mean, you can stay blind to some of these things for a long time. But it's like in the garage. Yeah. I don't know. It's attached to your fucking house. <laughs> like, I don't understand. <laughs> Keep out of my murder garage. I mean, garage. <laughs> I mean, garage. <laughs> I mean, garage. <laughs> uh, so Joel, of course, gets some lawyers. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. <laughs> good on him. <laughs> he gets law partners Michael Soshnik. And Joel Lawrence, I'm sorry, John Lawrence. <laughs> it's saying murder, Joel. Murder Lawrence, what? I yeah. mean, uh, Michael Soshnik and Joel, John Lawrence. <laughs> it's because I've been reading Joel this whole time. John like, Lawrence. His name is Joel now. <laughs> Just deal with it. It's the whole reason he picked it, because I shared a name. Yeah. Um, so, Soshnik and Lawrence to represent him, and he pleaded not guilty to the murder of Tiffany Bresciani who was the woman they found in the bed of his truck. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, his attorneys attempted to get his confession thrown out based on the grounds that authorities lacked probable cause to search his truck. Uh, smell wasn't probable enough. <laughs> right. Um, two months into the suppression hearing, Joel was offered a plea deal of 46 years to life for a guilty plea of all 17 murders. Uh, doesn't really seem like a deal to me. <laughs> but, well, as opposed to, like, death penalty, I'm I sure. Guess. <laughs> um 
He turned it down, though, because he thought that he would be found not guilty by reason of insanity. Okay. Okay. Then, so the hearing goes on to suppress. It's one of these pretrial hearings that you try to figure out what evidence is going to be in there. Um, Sashnik was habitually late to court and this like really offended the judge. Mm -hmm. So by 1994, Judge Ira Wexer, she decided I've had enough of this. I am done with this garbage, rejected all of the defense motions outright and was like, we're proceeding to trial. Oh my gosh. So it moves yes, to trial. Yeah, move, right. Proceed to trial. <laughs> uh, Joel, of course, was not super thrilled that one of his lawyers basically like swayed the judge's decision, fired him right away, kept on only John Lawrence, um, who, by the way, had never tried a criminal case. So this was his first cr- criminal case ever. Uh, the trial started on April 11th, 1994, and by May, he had been found guilty of murder and did not meet the legal standards for insanity. He was found guilty on nine counts of second-degree murder, sentenced to 203 years to life in prison, and is currently held at the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York. So that's up with what's up with him. Um, <laughs> what's up with him? Yeah, some people have actually attributed the Gilgo Beach murders to him as well. Right, because that's um, pretty similar with the chippy chappy of the bodies and whatnot. Right, <laughs> and those, of course, have been attributed to the Long Island serial killer for a long time. But Joel denies any of those allegations. Right, um, because it's not totally crazy to think multiple people are doing the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> I do want to wrap up my little section here with. Something on a lighter note, I guess. Okay. Are you are you a fan of Seinfeld? Yeah. Okay. So apparently there was a Seinfeld episode. Um, I, this is probably one of those things that when I watched it at just because of my age, like I wouldn't have gotten this Got reference right. at all. Because hopefully um, at that age you weren't like watching the news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in so the episode is called the Masseuse. Okay. And apparently Elaine has this boyfriend named Joel Rifkin in this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, And they are constantly like making references to Joel Rifkin, the serial killer. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's this moment where they're at a New York Giants game and his name gets announced over the loudspeaker. And so they have this idea that he needs to... um, like change his name elaine suggests that he changes his name Mm -hmm. so she's looking through this football magazine and suggests that he changes his name to oj oh god (laughs) right (laughs) that episode of uh seinfeld actually aired seven months before oj simpson was arrested (laughs) for (laughs) the murder of nicole brown simpson and um ronald goldman Mm -hmm. which i just thought was interesting there's like, some to some to end on. So check out that Seinfeld episode. Yeah. I actually haven't gone back to watch it again since doing all this research. I do want to go back and watch it though. Um, I just thought it was a little little that fun to Yeah, it's a little insight into some murder. Hello. <laughs> so that was Joel Rifkin, aka Joel the Ripper. All right, guys. So, Jackie's story was great, but now we're going to go even deeper. Oh, boy. And we're going to get even grosser. Oh, and no. I apologize ahead of time. God damn it, Janelle. This is going to be rough. It's going to be a rough story. All right. We're going to go across country. Wait. What? Okay, now I'm ready. Okay. 
Take a deep breath. Have a sip of water. Prepare yourself mentally and physically for this fucked up story I'm about to engage in. Okay, now I'm ready. Okay. Namaste. Namaste. (laughs) Namaste. Let's talk about murder. We're going to go cross country to California. About the same time period, uh, late 70s into the early 80s is when these were occurring. Um, And we're going to talk about the Sunset Strip Killers. Ooh. Sound intriguing to you? Yeah, I feel like actually I just saw something like a, it was just like a you know, callback crime history kind of article on these guys recently. So I'm very Um, excited. It's a story that takes place in the Sunset Strip area, which is like, you know, this time period is like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And like, you know, this is where all the sex workers were hanging out and all the drug addicts were shooting up and all the rock stars were playing music. Um, So it's like a hip area, but also like the seedy underground kind of like gross part of LA. Right. Yep. <laughs> um, but this is also a place where a massive amount of serial killers were finding victims because of the fact that it was so full of all of these sex workers and runaways and people who lived on the fringes of society. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people who, you know, essentially no one put quotes on that. No one cared about. Right. So it was easy to pick up people and take them away and no one would notice. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit of background about Doug Clark, who is the male part of the Sunset Strip Killers. And the female part is Carol Bundy. Ooh. Ooh. So um, they were a team. And we're going to kind of see the the dynamic of this. Okay. So Doug Clark was an army brat, which, hello, indicator number one, Mm -hmm. very common in serial killers. (laughs) Um, He was an army brat who moved around the United States with his family several times um, when he was younger. He was also part of the Air Force and was discharged honorably. Um, And after that, he proceeded again to kind of travel all over um, the United States looking for odd jobs, kind of, you know, being a mechanic, doing landscape, doing mm-hmm. labor. Again, indicator, hugely of a serial killer. Landscaping? Yes, <laughs> landscaping. Um, but all of this traveling would eventually lead him to the L.A. area at the end of the 70s. So he kind of just wound up there, back where he started, mm-hmm. just kind of hanging out. Now, Carol Bundy lived a very sordid, tragic life, which you see a lot in women who kill um, their upbringing. Not so great. So Carol Bundy was a child of two parents who were massive fucking alcoholics. Okay. Um, Her father was extremely abusive and her mother was just drunk 100% of the time. Her mother died when she was pretty young, and after that, her father started to begin to regularly abuse her, saying that you have to take over for your mother now. Oh, God, that's gross. Yes. Jesus. This would kind of set her on this course of, like, continually being involved with men who were abusive. So she would run away, run away from home like all the time, but always find herself back there. Um, and she was finally able to escape um, from this kind of like grip that her father had on her when she uh, got married at the age of seventeen to a fifty-six-year-old man. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! Wait, yeah. she was seventeen. She was seventeen, and her first husband was fifty-six. Um, he also not that great, abusive. Yeah. Yada 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 same story as her father um 
after that marriage ended, she would uh, eventually marry two more times to two more abusive alcoholics um, and just persisted the same sort of, you know, marriage, abuse, leave kind of process. Yeah. During her third marriage, she worked as a nurse for most of her life. However, her vision started to go. Okay. And she thought that she was becoming blind and she literally could not see. Um, turns out the bitch just needed some glasses. Oh. So <laughs> she was like, I can't see what's happening to me. Literally didn't even think to go to the eye doctor. Just like, I'm going blind. Part of me is like, I would, so I have to assume that it wasn't that things are going dark. It's just things were going blurry. Exactly. Which I'm like, that's way different. And if you, if you look at pictures of her, she has thick fucking Coke bottle glasses. Really? She just needed glasses. Go figure. Who would have thought? I can't see. What should I do? Um, go to the fucking eye doctor, you idiot. Right. So she went to the eye doctor and was able to get fucking glasses that she could see again. So she was able Big to return. Shocker. She was return, able to return to work as a nurse because she had to quit because she couldn't fucking see. Oh, no. Smart people we have. Um, <laughs> so in 1979, Bundy started um, to have an affair with her apartment manager, Jack Murray. This guy was like a Burt Reynolds looking motherfucker with like the little tie scarf around his throat and like the bouffant and he would wear his like 1970s big winged fucking button up shirts, but like unbuttoned all the way down to like the middle of the belly button. Yeah. Deep V. (laughs) The deepest of V's. Um, So (laughs) she was infatuated in love with him. He was an apartment manager for her building, but he also was a part-time singer, country singer, which is why he had those weird outfits he would wear. Um, Carol was so infatuated with him that she tried to bribe his wife to leave him for $1,000, but it went nowhere. So I'm totally looking at pictures of her, Uh and she looks like the guy from Trailer Park Boys. I don't know what his name is because I don't actually bubbles. watch that. Sh- it's yes. Bubbles in the show. Yeah, I don't actually watch that show, but she legit looks like him. I think that she's she- got short hair and everything. Like in some of these original, like photos back when she was Tim and Eric. Yes. Do you know the character that uh, Eric Wareheim plays, where he no it was Tim Tim, um, where he's a woman with the bowl cut and the glasses. Yes. I think that's what she looks like. Are you talking about the news? It wasn't at the. Are you talking about the news anchors? No, it was like a, a male and female couple who were like in love, and I think they were. Yeah, they're new they TV news, news anchors. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that was the same. Uh, they had Doctor Steve Brule on their <laughs> yes. show. Yeah, yeah, so yes. She looks like she a totally man does. playing a yeah. woman. <laughs> <in> <laughs> totally, the 70s. totally. Sorry, I just I, wanted to throw that out there because yeah, I'm like, glasses, this is unre- it's because the of the glasses were for sure. Really, like bubbles from Trailer Park. Yes, boys, yeah. Thick ass glasses. Yeah, like she literally could not see. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Ugh. no, continue. It's just, it's just like I had to. I had and to if pull you it look up. at pictures of Jack Murray, he's like a mildly attractive man for the 70s, and you're like, why were you hitting this bitch? Like, she can't <sighs> see. <laughs> I don't, maybe it's because she couldn't see. Yeah. It's like, take off her glasses. I like it when you're blind. Ew. Ew. Okay. So she tried to bribe his wife and he was like, listen, bitch, you need to pump the fucking brakes. I'm staying married. 
this is not happening. We're just having fun in the back of your van because it's the 70s. And that's that. So she would go and see him every night at his, like, other job where he was a country singer in (sighs) L.A. God. What the fuck? And it was at a club called Little Nashville. Okay. And this is eventually where she would meet Doug Clark because this is a place he also frequented. All right. All right. So. Um, Carol Bundy got kicked out of her apartment because, obviously, she tried to bribe Jack Murray's wife. And he was like, you need to go. So she got kicked out of her apartment. And she had nowhere to go. So her and Doug Clark moved in together very quickly. Like, right off the bat. Like, hey, come live with me. Okay. (laughs) Sure, too. Sure, why not? Um, The two claimed at first just to be friends, but Clark would rope Carol into a host of sexual murder games. Um, (laughs) Yep. Okay. So he began bringing escorts back to the apartment they shared to play sex games. Right? Innocent. Innocent little sex games. Yep. No. That's what I like to do on a Friday night. Um, It was a lot of, again, kind of like, um, not... They didn't do, like, binding or anything like that, but it was very, like... It was, like, swingery kind of stuff? Um, she never actually got involved in the escorts um, in the beginning. It was more... He would kind of yell at them, call them whores kind of a thing. Oh, uh, yeah. A lot of, like, aggressive talking and manhandling, mm-hmm. but not, like, binding or torture. Sure. Um, and he did a lot of uh, play dead acting Okay. Them. So there's a there's a name for that fetish of like having women basically be an object Mm -hmm. that's just there. So he kind of played with those ideas. Um, But he began to ramp up his behavior when he suddenly became infatuated with their neighbor who was an 11 year old girl. Uh, No, thanks. Yeah. Uh, You fucking weird. (laughs) Um, So Carol actually helped lure this child to the apartment. Where they tricked her into posing for nudes, and then he proceeded to assault her. God damn it, Carol. Carol, you fucked up. (laughs) What the hell? So this excitement of Carol helping him and this sort of innocent girl, like, who basically froze, obviously. Right, yeah. being assaulted. um, And the fact that he could possess her um, was what set him on a course for wanting more of this sort of feeling. Mm Mm-hmm. So he had told Carol that he wanted to experience sex with a dying girl. He thought it would be exciting to feel... Okay, this is going to get real graphic, so... Heads up. Fast forward by 10, okay? (laughs) He wanted to feel the body spasm through the last death throes. So he wanted to feel that, like, twinge within a person as they're dying. At least he's like, that is such a specific fetish. It's very. And at that point, that's like, that's not a fetish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not a fetish. Yeah. That's true. Um, so the murder spree began in June of 1980. So thus far, Carol has been pretty. She helped him assault this child, but she hasn't really. There's been no murder or anything involved mm-hmm. thus far. And she, all she did was help him lure that child to the apartment she didn't participate in the assault or anything like that or the the nudes she kind of just got the girl there and left same thing with the escorts when they would come in she would leave Mm -hmm. so she hasn't really been seeing too much of his behavior with these women just kind of discussing what his fantasies are um but when the murder shoot began in june of 1980 this is when it started getting 
a little bit more involvement and a little crazier. Yeah. Um, Clark brought home two teenage girls who were runaways, and he held them at gunpoint with guns that Carol had bought. So Carol was told by him to buy two guns for protection just in case. And so she did, and they had two guns in their house, identical guns. His and hers, if you Aww, will. matching. Uh, <laughs> he ordered these two girls at gunpoint to perform oral sex on him, and then he took them to the shed and shot them in their head and then went full-blown necrophilia. So, again, he talked about how he wanted to feel, you know, the death spasms in a person's body, so that's what he did. And this really set him on this huge murder spree. After he was done... I'm just sitting over here (laughs) shaking my head, because that's fucked up. That's fucked fucked up. up. Also, I just was just thinking about, like, how he could control two women... You know, at the same time with just one gun, I don't know. It's just to me that seemed like was Carol in? She wasn't involved in this one. Okay, she had no knowledge of this, as we'll find out in a minute what actually occurred. Um, He dumped their bodies near the Ventura Freeway, so Carol was not present for these murders, but Clark had told her about them after it occurred. Okay. At this point, Carol became conflicted. She attempted to contact the police just to verify the story to see if it was true. But she couldn't follow through with the discussion, and she hung up on them. So she basically was like, I have a boyfriend who said he killed these girls, and la, la, la. And they're like, well, that's immediately going to be like... Freeway, and they were like, and she was like, fuck, and then just hung up the phone. Yeah. So she had this sort of period in this time where she was like, do I go along with this, or Mm -hmm. do I fucking turn him in? But because of the way she was growing up and the men she was with she was used to abusive relationships and she just wanted to please him so she was like right hang up the phone yeah um so clark then took carol to where he had dumped the bodies and explained to her his fantasy further and that he wanted to be in like he wanted her to be involved and that she was the special missing piece to this puzzle you so special you special you girl, you special. Girl. You help me. You help me get these other girls. Uh-huh. Girl. Um, God, so, yeah. so bad. Yuck, yucks. Um, Twelve days after this event occurred, the two would strike together this time. So uh, two sex workers, Karen Jones and Exie Wilson, were found. Um, they were lured, murdered, and assaulted in that order, like the previous two girls. Mm-hmm. Um, Carol told Clark that... He needed to ramp up his murders to seem more psychotic so that no one would expect such a sane man to be performing these crimes. So just take that sentence in for a minute. She's like, I support you, but you need to look crazy so that no one will suspect such a innocent, sane man for doing this. Well, and honestly, if they are thinking farther ahead, that is an easy way to set up an insanity defense if you ever get caught. Mm Mm-hmm. So at first, the police didn't connect the two um, murders of Karen Jones and Exie Wilson to the first two teenage girls um, because, you know, they were runaways or sex workers. And this thing happened all the time. And Carol kind of started to become, you know, she began to warm up to this. And he quickly, like, like looked at her as, like, his assistant. Mm -hmm. And she was so excited um, to please him that she became so attached to this like this saga that was happening yeah now we're gonna talk about xc wilson okay 
As part of his ramp up, he beheaded Exy Wilson after he was done with her. Okay. Now, the thing is, he kept her head and disposed of her body. Now, Clark had kept her head in the freezer specifically, okay? Now, oh, this, no. Oh, no. This is, this is not get, going where I think it's going, is it? This is going to get real graphic. I apologize. Oh, no. He would take her head out of the freezer and use it for sex at his leisure. That's where I thought this was going. Precisely. Um, he would eventually dispose of it about 10 days later, but it was too late. Um they had found her body already, and then literally 10 days later, literally after he dumped it, someone was cleaning up the highway um, near the Sunset Strip, and they found a box. And in that box was her head wrapped in plastic. Now, when they um, examined her, they opened it. So it was the box, then they opened the plastic, and then there was this cloth that was wrapped around her head. Well, when they undid the cloth, they found out it was a novelty t-shirt, that was airbrushed with the saying daddy's girl on it what the fuck so what the like, actual fuck all of these layers why <laughs> and yeah so then they investigated further and they kind of looked at her head and they realized that they had the same bullet wound in it as the other three girls yeah and they went fuck i think these cases are connected so they kind of started investigating it now as the connection between the two teenagers, Exie Wilson and Karen. They're like, okay, these seem to be all connected because it was the exact same gun, the exact same manner of execution and then assault. This is fucked up that I even have to ask this, but did they ever, were they able to get any like semen out of the head? They were. Okay. Yes. But because he wasn't in the system and it wasn't really like a DNA kind of system in this time, they like also checked for fingerprints to Mm -hmm. see and like any sort of information, but they did find semen in her mouth. Gross. And also in the back of her head. Oh my God. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. We'll just retract that statement. (laughs) I mean, it happened. It happened. I let it out. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry for this story. I'm sorry that people exist like this. Yeah. Ugh. So, on that note. I thought mine was going to be bad, but yours okay. is much worse. It's bad. Yeah. It's bad news bears. Yeah. Um. So, three days later after the head was found, another girl was found off of a highway in San Bernardino. Again, the same manner and method and of death and assault. Um he is also believed to have killed an unidentified girl in Newhall, California. They couldn't identify her due to like extreme skeletonization of her mm-hmm. body because she was found a long, long, long time after yeah. she was killed. Yeah. He never really um, confessed to this, but they attribute it to him because it was the same sort of manner of execution and throwing off the highway. Mm-hmm. Clark also called the first two girls, those teenage girls were friends and they had another mutual friend. Um, he called her and proceeded to harass her and stated he would do the same to her. Now, if you're wondering how he found out who their friend was, yeah, in one of the girl's pockets, a piece of paper with her phone number and name was written. Oh. Um, so what had happened is those girls were at a party. She gave them her phone number. She's like, you know, if you need help, find a place to sleep tonight or whatever just give me a call you can come stay at my house yeah so he took that phone number and he called that girl 
several times stating that he was going to do the same thing to her. There is an interview. I have the link um, and I will post it up. It is an interview on Larry King Live Mm -hmm. with um, a reporter, that girl, and then a crime writer kind of discussing the case. The crime writer was like, I don't know. This sounds a little weird. And then obviously the reporter and the girl were like, no, these people fucking did this. Yeah. So it's really fascinating to hear the girl explain the story because she has a Valley Girl accent. Nice. And she's like, I was afraid for my life. And like he said, I'm going to do the same thing to you. It's like, it's really... Oh, gosh. I, I mean, it's not funny, but just the way she's talking is like, I literally worth can't it. even take her so seriously. Worth it. Yeah. And she kept like flipping her hair in the front and like fixing it. And it was just like, this literally is a valley girl. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So it was, it was rough. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's fast forward to six months later. Carol went to the little Nashville to have a drink. Not the big Nashville. The, the little, little baby Nashville. Little baby Nashville. At the Nashville, she saw Jack, because obviously he's hanging out there all the time. She began to talk and reminisce about their time together. And they kept getting drunker and drunker and drunker. Do you remember that time before I started murdering? Right? <laughs> remember the good old times? It was just you and me and your bandana that's tied around your neck. You fucking <laughs> you, Burt Reynolds you motherfucker. sexy beast. <laughs> um, now, during this conversation, because they were like shit-faced, mm-hmm. she alluded to the fact that her and Clark were doing some scandalous things. I mean, I okay. that is like a little bit beyond scandalous. Right. That's like, like we're like kidnapping people and murdering Jesus. them. Um, and Jack stated that this was freaking him the fuck out, and he was going to call the police. And he's like, "You're batshit crazy." And she goes, "No, no, no, baby, no, baby, no, no baby." Oh my god! And she's like, "Let's go outside." We'll talk about this further. So she takes him to her van, and she's like, we're going to have sex. And hey, we're just going to forget hey about you. this conversation. We're going to do had. it. We're going to do it. You're going to shut your mouth. We're going to do it. a little whisper it. on his lips. Get in He's here. Like, you shut your mouth. Shut, sh- I'm take you now. <laughs> uh, she takes off her glasses and is completely blind. Where'd you go? Where's that? T- no, where'd you go? Where Get over here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... She lures him in there and then proceeds to shoot him in the fucking back of the head. Oh. And then cut his head off. Oh. Just like zero to well, ten. Well, that's a good turn. She's just like, just kidding. Goodbye. <laughs> um, she then left his body in the van and a shit ton of evidence behind. Um, now, the cops believe she did this because she wanted to get caught. Yeah. Um, but she did take his fucking head. So. <laughs> Mm-mm. He was most Not known for girl. his uh, necktie, so they knew right away who it was. No, <laughs> that was just my little. Where's the neck, though? <laughs> um, this is just above the chin. Yeah. Here, she took off. Um, now, days later, the pressure began to build, and she started to feel extremely fucking guilty, and it became too much, and she went and called the police and confessed. So the killing of her lover kind of, like, pushed her over the edge, supposedly. The one who wouldn't leave his wife. Right. For her. And it's like, also, like, if you're going to bribe someone's wife to leave, give them more than $1,000. I'll give you one grand to leave your I'll give you $10. $20. (laughs) Now, uh, Clark was, like, immediately arrested, obviously, because she was like, he's the one who's doing it all. 
Um, and they found the two guns that uh, Carol Bundy had bought, and they matched the crimes perfectly. Now, Carol Bundy was charged with two murders, that of Jack Murray and one of the other girls. Okay. Um, and then she was sentenced to 50 years to life. Now, Clark was charged with six murders, and he was sentenced to death. Now, there's a little bit of controversy surrounding okay. this story. Give me the juicy details. Some doubt has been cast on the nature of Clark's convictions, okay? Mm-hmm. Investigative criminologist Christopher Barry D. has contested that Clark could actually provide alibis for five of the seven murders he was convicted of. Okay. And that the presiding judge refused to accept physical evidence that was key to his exoneration, basically. This includes a witness and several banking documents that exonerated him in the murders of Exe Wilson. Aside from this, Bundy's testimony has been proven to be highly inconsistent and riddled with contradictions. She claimed that at first Clark had murdered Jane Doe 18 two weeks before her interview on August 11th without her involvement or knowledge. Mm -hmm. When she was told that Clark had an airtight alibi for this date, she was allowed to change her story and subsequently provided intricate details on the manner of the murder and location of the body, even though she had at first claimed to know nothing about it. Hmm. Weird, right? That is weird. Okay. Now, Bundy has also admitted that the police allowed her to withdraw $3,000 from her victim Jack Murray's bank account because they were on a bank account together, although she claims the police took this money and did not return it to her. Okay. Again, weird. Now, with an almost total lack of physical evidence, Carol Bundy's testimony formed the entire basis of Clark's conviction. She must she have gotten a, witness. Did she get a deal? Like, yeah, is that she got what it was? 50 years to life instead of death. And that was like the, was deal, the deal for cooperation. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing is like, I mean, you got to be totally invested in whatever this person is telling you to make a deal like that to yeah. testify against but, somebody else. To put the icing on the cake, Clark's lawyer was drunk during most of this. Oh my! And he God. fell asleep numerous times while Clark was being cross-examined. <laughs> As a request, um, he's like, "I want to defend myself instead." That so, always works out one hundred percent of the time. Yes, he was denied co-counsel, advisory counsel, and the services of a law clerk. The judge illegally telling him to go it alone. Mm. Okay. So let's dive into a conspiracy theory. Ooh, your favorite. I love conspiracy theories. Um, there is some evidence that Clark may not have been involved with the murders due to the alibis. Clark put out a great deal of time and effort finding evidence that Carol and Jack Murray were the real murderers. Okay. Which is why she killed him in the first place. Um, he claims that Carol was the perpetrator of all these crimes and that Murray was an accomplice to one assault. And he also stated that Carol copied her crimes from none other. Are you ready for this? You ready? Ted fucking Bundy. Uh, are their last names a coincidence? What? No, they're not. Oh, she oh, actually, they're not? No. Okay. She actually used to go by Carol Boone and then changed her name to motherfucking Bundy. Okay. Same name! <laughs> so, what about the semen in the head? What about the semen in the head? I'm just saying. They like, never tested it, because this was the 70s and the 80s. Uh, and that head is long gone. It was buried with her body. 
Yeah, but I mean, if they have, I'm just like, that's really hard to fake. They should retest that. That's true. I don't know if there would be any physical evidence yeah. left now. Not a, probably not if they are finished with all of their appeals processes. Yeah, and, and I don't stuff. think they, they would took destroy DNA the collection from the body like I that back then. I don't think they swabbed. But, but what about the semen? That's what all about I'm saying. The semen? Um, I think we found our episode name. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to... There so is true. an amazing interview with Doug Clark. Um, and I'm going to play a little snippet where he goes into this conspiracy theory. And it is fucking bananas. Okay? Are you ready for this? Yeah. We'll put the full clip up and the other kind of interviews and a couple articles but ugh. also in his old age doug clark looked like fucking um charles manson so that's another fun little oh, thing God. you can yeah take a peek at so here we go with this uh interview june 14th coinciding right after the uh right as this book is saying that these events are starting to unfold in the book she calls police we have a tape recording of the call by the police she gives john and Red Plymouth. Ted, Beige VW. Coincidence that it's suddenly... Well, it's not so much coincidence when you look at page 34. Page 34, according to the book, I don't know what real name the woman's using, the book says, Ted's girlfriend named Melanie's calling the police saying she thinks her lover might be the killer and she's scared. Guess what we have on June 14th? Carol Bundy calling police saying, I think my lover's the killer and I'm scared. And he drives a VW, and his name's Ted. And he drives a red Plymouth, and his name's John. Right in the same spot in the case. Was Did did Carol Bundy have a relationship with Ted Bundy? Yes, she wrote to him while he was on death row. She didn't want to admit it, but we busted her because the sheriffs were illegally copying her mail. Thank was, God for illegalities. Her name was Carol Boone, wasn't it, one time? Carol Boone. Now, can you just tell, tell me about that? We're going to finish this one segment because it's vital, because that ties in the double murder. Yeah, Carol Bundy told police, we'll get right back to that. On this triple murder decapitation, a double plus an attempt, the, the facts prove that she could not have gone back to Hollywood to make this attempt for a third. But then you stop and think, why would the killer go back to Hollywood to attempt to fail to match the book? Why attempt a failed kidnap? If you're not going to succeed, why bother? Just say you did it. So that got documented. And then we wondered why on August 11th, Carol Bundy said that they were driving around in the valley with Exie Wilson's severed head in a wooden casket that she bought, her own volition. Her idea to cut the girls' heads off, she said on tape, she says it was her idea to cut heads off, but there's only one cut off other than Jack's, and it matches the book. She's driving around, she says, in the valley with the killer. She says it's me. We say it's Jack, whoever it is. She's driving around in the valley with a human head in a wooden box. Why? She says we were looking for the location of a prior murder of a girl, a hooker, to drop the head at the scene. Where do we find that? Ted Bundy dropped the head of Denise Nasland at the scene of a prior murder. The cops found too many heads, not enough bodies. Too many bodies, not enough heads. Right here in the script. What are the coincidences of this? The same victim chronologically is decapitated. The same victim's head's taken away. The same victim, she says, she was trying to find the murder scene of a prior victim. Same as the book. 
This is a Ted Bundy copycat murder case. Anybody that says otherwise, there's hundreds of these examples in this book. Jack Murray died the same day Carol Valenzuela died in the book. Carol talks about a massacre in a, in a Mexican bar she was staging. Ted Bundy escaped from uh, jail in Colorado, ran to Florida, committed a mass murder in a, in a boarding house. So that was the clip. And <laughs> That's really fun. I have so many emotions. We'll be sure to put the full clip uh, in the show notes. Yeah. If you want to check um, it out. But he's fucking crazy. <laughs> I just, I imagine him as um, like a Charlie Day in the, you know, with all the... Oh, you ever yes. watch Always Sunny? Yes. When he had all the strings, and the strings, strings and like, and this is connected to this, and this, and what about this? Like, whoa, this connection. Oh, God, it's literally how it is. I love it. It is. I love it. Oh man, I don't even know. <laughs> it's rough, but yeah. I mean, I could, I could see her perpetrating these crimes. I could see that, but like, I mean. I don't really think that Jack Murray would do that. I don't think that they were involved like that. I feel like she was infatuated with him, and he was just like, I get to booty when I want to booty. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Oh, no. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. But there is also, um, there was a TV show that they tried to do with the guy from Gossip Girl, that British guy with the cut jaw, whatever the fuck his name is. Okay. Um that kind of was modeled after the Sunset Strip Killers. Yeah. And it is fucking dumb as shit. But you should check it out. It, I forget what the name is. I'll put the link up here. I have it in the notes as well. But it's like... Okay. It's a really poor rendition of this story. <laughs> All <laughs> but right, But it is then. very amusing to watch. <laughs> I watched the first couple episodes. If there's... Okay, if there's any indication, they, like, stopped airing it after half of the episodes. And they were just like, this is a hard mm, no. It's a hard no done. for me. Hard pass. But, yeah. So, um, check out the rest of that interview and these other news clips and stories that I have on here. But, yeah. That guy's still sitting in jail on death row. And she's still in jail. And, literally, that is the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It was Oh jeez. Fucking rough. <laughs> I know we just gave you a lot of stuff to look up, a lot of interviews and yes, things. Yes, yes. But What's if you have more? time, <laughs> you should try to fit in this podcast. Welcome to the promo for the Marble Orchard Podcast, the weekly podcast that explores emergent mysteries of the American Southwest. Hosted by me, Prickly Pete, and my co-host, Faye Daniel. And we're not just another true crime podcast. We also discuss history, unexplained events, and local monsters. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast listening app. All right, guys. I know that was a really long episode, so we're going to keep the ending short and sweet to the point. First of all, if you like the show, there's a couple things you can do. You can give us a review on iTunes. You can also check out our social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, the Bad Taste Crimecast, on Twitter, at BT Crimecast. You can check out our website, badtastecrimecast.com. Merch um, if you need a t-shirt, <laughs> go get yourself a t-shirt. Yeah. Uh, we also have a Patreon if you're interested yes. in supporting financially, as well yes. as PayPal. Mm-hmm. Check both those things out. Yep. Do you have any reviews or anything this week? Uh, no reviews, but I know there's been a lot of talk about the Golden State Killer. Oh, yes. So we're not going to like go into that yeah. on the pod. Yes. But if you do want to hear our perspective and our um, 
review of Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, check out our Patreon. We are having a four-part series that's going to go over the book and a little bit about uh, DNA collection. So definitely going to be very fascinating. Um, check it out. And um, that's our take on the Golden State Killer. <laughs> yeah, we try. I obviously that like she like you said. There's it's been in the news forever. Right. There's not really too too much that we can say about it in an episode that mm-hmm. isn't going to be out there. So right. we'll let you guys just listen to that special. Yeah, if you want it, come and get it. If you want it, come and get it. Yeah. Um, I think that's it, right? Yes, that is all. That is all. Uh, <laughs> our sound and editing is done by Tiff Weech. Our music is done by Jason Jackchewski, the Enigma. Thanks, guys. Got him. <laughs> Got him. You guys are wonderful. We will see you in two weeks. Yes. Goodbye. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Goodbye. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all.